0: Alright, <clears throat> let's go back to Luke chapter 3, um, and I'm going to be primarily in verses 16 and 17, but let's just uh, take a short reading from verse 15. So Luke chapter 3, uh, reading from 15 uh, through the end, uh, uh, sorry, through 20, so 15 through 20. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. Whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. And so the question then is: Are you the Christ? And of course, um, John is very clear. He is not. Um, he, he is not like many people would be, who would say, "Well, uh, you know." work it out for yourself and sort of try and take a little bit of the of the shine from the Lord. But he is very clear. He is not uh, the Christ. He is not the Messiah. Um, and he says, in fact, in comparison to the Messiah, he says, I am not worthy to undo his shoelaces or his sandal straps. Um, those days, the um, uh, the the lowest work that you could do for a Teacher, Remember that teachers had disciples, rabbis had disciples, and these disciples would do all sorts of things for the teacher in exchange for the teaching. And they would, you know, carry their stuff, make their food, wash their feet. Uh, But you would never undo the man's sandals. That was, for some reason in their culture, that was even worse than washing their feet. That was the lowest thing you could do. And he says, I am not even worthy to unloose his, his sandals. And so he says, he is mightier than I. He is much mightier. He says, and then he compares the fact, he says, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Of course, the contrast between water, the Holy Spirit, and fire. When he says he will baptize with fire, the question is, what does he mean? That he will baptize with fire. And of course the traditional view in Pentecost is to say, well, you know, when the day of Pentecost came there were flames of fire on the disciples and that is what he was meaning. Well, I don't believe that that is what he was meaning because clearly he is speaking in a particular context here and he is using the word fire. Remember I said three times in this passage. And it's interesting that the other two times when he uses the word fire, he's using it in the sense or the context of judgment. So is Jesus going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and judgment? And there is an element in which that is true because the next verse speaks about the winnowing fork and the threshing floor and burning the chaff in the fire. And we'll speak about that. But clearly, he is baptizing. Who does he baptize? Who does Jesus baptize with the Holy Spirit? Clearly, those who are believers. Do believers come under condemnation? Do believers, uh, are they in danger of hellfire? And the answer is obviously no. If we are born again, we we have passed from judgment to life. There is no more judgment. There is no condemnation for us in the sense of eternal judgment. So he's clearly not meaning then that Christians will experience eternal judgment. So he must be meaning something else. And remember that when the scripture uses this term fire, it's always in two senses. It's, it's really one sense, but two sort of sub-ideas uh, from that. Um, the, the one is obviously judgment. What is the purpose of judgment? What is the purpose of hellfire? It, it is not for God to just unleash His wrath. But it is to purge the earth from those who are sinners. And so, but then there's the other aspect, and that is that fire is there to cleanse, to purge. And you find this in the epistle of Peter, where he says speaks about our faith, that when it is purged, when it is tried in the fire, produces pure gold. And so metal is purged in fire. And gold, you can put that in the fire and all the dross and all the rubbish will burn up, but the gold will not be consumed. It will stand. It will endure the test. And so Peter uses that term in the sense of saying that as Christians, he is going to baptize us with fire. And the purpose of the fire is not to destroy us, but to destroy that within our lives that doesn't please him. Those things that are rubbish in our lives. Now just think about this. Uh, we spoke yesterday with the, uh, in the brethren's meeting, we spoke about uh, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, just in, in, in passing. But the, the concept of what does the Holy Spirit do for us? Oh, he gives us gifts. He empowers us. He does all, does all of these wonderful things. But in all of that talk about what the Holy Spirit does, there is a a misunderstanding or a forgetting that He is the Holy Spirit. He is not just the Spirit, He is the Holy Spirit. The very essence of who the third person of the Trinity is, is holiness. And the primary thing which He achieves in our lives is not to empower us for service. He does that. But the primary thing He's supposed to do in our lives is to make us holy. And Jesus says He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, He comes and He purges us. He cleanses us of those things that don't belong. Now you can immediately see that there are those who claim that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, whatever language you want to use, and I'm not going to get into the technical stuff, whether you're filled or baptized or uh, whatever, with the Holy Spirit. But if you claim to have the Holy Spirit, in whatever shape or form you understand that to be, and there is no holiness in your life, then, how can I put this... Questionable. Thank you, brother. My brother is a lot more gracious than I am. <laughs> you cannot have the Holy Spirit and live in sin. Because the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is to cleanse. Remember, he will convict The world, but if he does that for the world, he will do that for the church also. Of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. And if there is no conviction, there is no Holy Spirit. And so he's going to cleanse, and he's going to purge us. And folk, there must be an ongoing cleansing and purging happening in our lives. The problem is that, again, connecting to what we said earlier this, this morning, that we, it's so easy to say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I, I believe, I was baptized. But where is the fruit? And you can see the connection with what John is saying now. The fruit must be holiness. The fruit must be holiness. Now, now we don't believe, I don't believe in legalism. And it may come as a shock to you, but I have no rules in my church. No rules. And I'm serious about that. I don't make rules about smoking or drinking or pornography or adultery or whatever. I have no rules. Because I understand that I can make the rules and people can keep the rules in order to stay out of trouble with me. And I think you've... Begun to understand that I can be somewhat of a troublesome person. But you're still not holy. I'm not interested in fake Christianity. I'm not interested in people putting on a show in order to please the pastor or to look good in church or for whatever reason or even to please God. What I'm interested in, as you've gathered from this morning, is a changed heart, a changed life. And so you can stop doing all sorts of things, you can start doing all sorts of other things, but if it does not come from from a purity within, it's a waste of time. And I'm not going to repreach this morning, but remember that Jesus speaks about the Pharisees who cleansed the outside of the cup, but inside it is still filthy. So the Holy Spirit produces holiness. And then he goes on and he says that his winnowing fan is in his hand. Now, I I don't want to insult you, but I I must give you a little bit of a lesson here in case you don't understand this, I'm sure you do, but remember I preach to city kids who don't have a clue about any of these things. So those days, what they would do is they would gather the wheat in in the threshing floor. And I grew up knowing and seeing threshing floors And they're generally round, and they are a hard surface. Maybe clay or something else, um, but it would be a hard surface. And they would put all of the wheat on the threshing floor. And remember, the threshing floor appears a number of times in Scripture. Remember, David comes to Arona, and he he has a threshing floor. And then they would take uh, sometimes horses or sometimes cattle... And remember, Paul says that you will not uh, muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. This is the same thing. Uh, Remember, corn is wheat in that. uh, And so they they would take uh, cattle or horses, and they would drive them around and around. Many times there would be a pole in the middle, and there would be a rope. And so the horse or the the ox would walk around, and as as he goes around, the rope gets shorter. And, uh, and so he covers the whole thing, and then they reverse him so he doesn't get drunk, and they, he goes around the other way. Until he has separated the wheat from the chaff. Remember that the wheat is inside of a husk, inside of a shell, and that needs to be broken. And remember, the disciples did the same thing. Uh, they were accused of breaking the Sabbath because they were walking through the wheat fields, and they were... They were rubbing out the corn. I used to do this as a child. So you pick ears of corn and you, or of wheat and you rub it and the, it separates the two, the wheat uh, from the husk. But it's all still mixed up. And then the next thing that needs to happen is they would take a winnowing fork or a winnowing fan and they throw it up in the air. And the wind blows the chaff, which is light, away and the wheat falls to the ground. And they keep doing that until you have pure wheat and all of the chaff is on the other side and they do exactly the same still today except it's all inside of a big machine which we call a combine harvester but it works in exactly the same way it beats up the the wheat to separate the husk from the corn and then there's a fan, and if you ever see a combine harvester, you'll see clouds of dust behind it, and that is the chaff that's being blown out, and the wheat falls into a hopper, and then they load that onto a trailer. So there's the context. There's the, uh, p- the picture. And so his winnowing fork is in his hand. And the winnowing fork is used only for one thing, and that is to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now I want you to notice again. Pay attention to the to the detail. Remember, we spoke about the trees, plural, and that that is very significant because it teaches us something important. And if you look at verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and or fan, different translations, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor. Is that what it says? His threshing floor. His threshing floor. So what is His threshing floor in the context of John's preaching? Israel. What is His threshing floor today? The church. Remember, the church does not replace Israel, but at the moment God is dealing with the church. He will return to Israel. He will still deal with Israel again. And so he is cleansing Israel, John is saying. And in the process he is sifting wheat from chaff. And so clearly again it's connected to the previous statement that the axe is laid at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce fruit is chopped out and thrown into the fire. And here you see exactly the same thing. He gathers the wheat into his barn and the chaff is thrown into the fire. Same picture again. And so notice what he is saying. Because we get get stuck into the details and we, we forget the broader picture. Israel is looking for their Messiah. What is the Messiah going to do? Oh, he's going to chase away the Romans. He's going to set up the kingdom. He's going to restore the throne of David. He's going to usher in uh, the millennial reign with, uh, with, with uh, this wonderful time of peace and of prosperity for Israel. That's what they're looking for. And we understand that that was not what he had come to do in the first instance, but he had come to die. But at the same time, what John is saying is you're looking for a savior from the Romans, but in fact he's coming to judge. He's coming to judge because that's the process of, of winnowing, of throwing the wheat up to separate the wheat from the chaff. It's judgment, it's separation. Notice that John does not say his winnowing fork will be in his hand in the second coming. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Remember what I said on Friday night, Luke is incredibly detailed. Every detail is there for a reason, there is a message in it. And if Luke intended that he was referring to the judgment to come at the end of the age, he would say his winnowing fork will be in his hand. But he says his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's going to cleanse his threshing floor. He said, Well, brother, that's a, that's a new one for me. I don't, I don't see a judgment in the three and a half years of Jesus' preaching. Where's the judgment? Did he cleanse the threshing floor? Did he do what John said he would be doing? Well, obviously he must have done what he said he was going to do. So where is the judgment? And we need to understand that if we're going to find the application for us today. Where is the judgment? The judgment happened every time Jesus opened his mouth. And the judgment happened within the hearts of men. Those who received the gospel were saved. Those who rejected the message of the kingdom were rejected and were condemned. You see, we don't have to wait for the great white throne judgment. The judgment happens when we either receive or reject the word. At that point already, Our fate is sealed. Now I understand that God is gracious and he gives us more opportunities and he keeps speaking. But the time comes when he says, I'm done speaking, I'm not going to still speak, and it's done. Your eternal destiny is determined at that point. And obviously uh, the final judgment, not the final judgment, but really the, I don't know what word to use, but the, the most crucial judgment happens at the point of death. And again, there's no formal judgment, there's no, that, that formal, that, uh, that's all happens at the great white throne for those who are unbelievers. But at the point of death, the book of Ecclesiastes says, as the tree falls, so it will lie. There is no purgatory, there is no second chance, there is no soul sleep. You die an unbeliever, that's it. There is no change to that situation. You die a believer, you're saved, there is no change to that situation. And so at the point of death, there is a separation of the sheep and the the goats or the wheat and the chaff. But that is a confirmation of that which happens when we hear the word of God. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, If you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation. And so there is a sense of judgment every time the word of God is preached. And it's not God judging, but it's us judging ourselves by submitting to the word, receiving the word, obeying the word, or rebelling against the word, and going our own way. But I think it's more than that. And folk, I want you to understand what I'm saying now. Jesus at one stage had in excess of 5,000 people following him. And he feeds them. And they go with him day after day after day. And I think that if he was a modern preacher, he would say, well, that's great. You know, we've we've got something going here. And then what does Jesus do? He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And what happened? They all left. Only the 12 were left. What was Jesus doing? He was purging his threshing floor. He was testing them. And he says, You have not followed me because of the words I speak. You have followed me because I gave you bread to eat. In other words, you're with me for the wrong reason. And he tests them. He is purging his threshing floor. And he's left with 12. And then he tests them. And he says to them, well, why don't you also go? And Peter speaks for the twelve and he says, where, where do we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter understood that it was not about the bread, but about the words. And God tests us. And it's normally through the preaching of his word. Sometimes it's through trials. Sometimes it's through circumstances in our lives. But He is testing to see what is in our hearts. Now remember, He doesn't need to do, He he knows what's in our hearts. He doesn't have to test us to find out what's in our hearts. He knows. But the problem is, we don't know what's in our hearts. And the 5,000 thought that they were with Jesus. They thought they were, put, to put it in New Testament terms, they thought they were saved. And they understood they were not saved. Remember, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, I, I want to follow you. I'm, what, what do I do? Remember the question I raised earlier, the Jewish question? What must I do? And Jesus says, go and sell everything. And the rich young man goes away sorrowful. Did Jesus know what was in? His, he knew what was, but he was testing him, for he's a. Uh, because he didn't want people following him who were not real disciples. And so his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's cleansing his threshing floor. And right through the ministry of Jesus, there's a constant sifting going on. There's a constant purging going on. And I told you this morning in a different context what the result was. 120 in the upper room. It's very interesting that it seems that there were, as I said earlier, 500 in Galilee, but only 120 in Jerusalem. And that connects with what we said on Friday. John goes into the wilderness, not into Jerusalem. But anyhow, so of the thousands that ate the bread that Jesus made. The thousands that witnessed the miracles that Jesus performed. The thousands that heard him preach. And for those who are preachers amongst us, don't be disturbed when at the end there's only a handful left because it was the same for Jesus. And the problem is we we don't want to say... and. I think I said on Friday night, if I didn't, I'm going to remind you. One of the pleasures, one of the privileges of being a traveling preacher is that I can hit and run. I don't have to deal with the fallout afterwards. But I preach the same message in my own church. It's on YouTube if you're interested. Preach the same message. And people leave the church. People turn against the preacher. And it's no skin off my nose. Because I want what God wants. I'm not interested in a big church that's all show and no go. All external stuff but there's no substance, there's no reality it's easy to get people to follow you just say things that please them but jesus is testing and i believe that he is still testing and so where we where we are now at the end of the age and just to fast forward we said on friday that john is preaching in the same environment context as jesus as 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 we are The same religious problem, the same sort of religious spirit that was present at that time, people had a form of godliness, but they denied the power, is present with us today. His threshing floor today is the church. There are thousands and thousands who are following him, not because of the words that he gives, but because he gives them bread to eat. It's interesting how this comes back to what John said to to, to these three groups of people who came to him. Put your hand in your pocket. It's amazing how we follow for the bread, how we will, how how these material things impact on our relationship with God. And I believe that he is again sifting. Purging his threshing floor. Because Jesus is coming soon. And remember that in the book of Ephesians it says that he. He is coming for a pure bride, a bride that has been cleansed and purified, without spot and without blemish. And when we look at the church at large, at the visible church today, we cannot say that it is without spot and blemish, but in, because in fact there are too many spots and blemishes, doctrinal spots and blemishes, moral spots and blemishes, all sorts of issues and problems. And I believe that the time in which we are today, He is pur- purging. He is cleansing. He is calling out for Himself a people. And we spoke about this yesterday morning. You come to the last church in this, of the seven churches, and remember those seven churches represent many different things. There were literal seven churches at any stage. In Melbourne today, you will find churches that represent each one of those seven churches. But they also represent seven ages in the... Devolution of the church from the church of of Ephesus, who were doctrinally correct but had already lost their first love, they turned away, left their first love, to the church of Laodicea, which is where we are today. The church is rich and increased with goods. Ah, oh, preacher, you're really obsessed with material things, but you can see the problem. We are rich and increased with goods. We have need of nothing. And when the church says we have need of nothing, included in that nothing is Jesus. We don't even need Jesus. We have our programs. We have our systems. We have our buildings. We have everything we need. We don't need Jesus. And folk you say, well, that's really harsh, brother. That is the truth. You can go into many, many big mega churches and you will, you will not hear Jesus preached. And you say, oh, but we, they do preach Jesus. Yeah, they preach a Jesus of their own imaginations, but not a Jesus of the Bible. Remember, Paul warns that there is another gospel and another Jesus. So we need to make sure that we, we're following the right Jesus and following the right gospel. And so he's cleansing and he's purging. You know, one of the disturbing passages in Scripture is Hebrews chapter twelve. And it compares Mount Zion of Mount Sinai. When God spoke and he shook the mountain. And it goes on to say that yet once more he shakes. Not just the earth but the heavens also. And the purpose of the shaking is that that which remains may remain. Yesterday I was speaking to a brother, in fact Brother Werner and I were, and he he used to farm with olives and explained how they reap the olives. And what they do is they have a machine and the machine grips the tree and shakes the tree and all the olives fall off. Well, 80 or 90% of them fall off. And folk, right now, God is shaking the tree. Because he doesn't want hangers-on. You you have that term? Hangers-on. He wants real disciples. And when he shakes, the hangers-on will fall off. And he is shaking his church. He is shaking every church. And every true church is getting smaller. Every true church is getting smaller. Now I know that blows some people's minds. Because we say, well, the church must grow. The church must get bigger. Yes, there was a time... When the church was growing and getting bigger in the 60s and 70s and the 80s. But we've now come to the end. And the same same principle, the same pattern Jesus preaches and many people follow. And then he tests them. And many of them fall away. And I believe with all my heart... From my limited understanding of what's going on in the world and in the countries that I travel in that God is again testing his work that that which remains may remain and the rest will fall off and people are falling by the wayside left right and center and pastors and elders are weeping before God and saying what's happening to my church people are leaving They're leaving because they've been shaken loose. They're leaving because the wind has blown the chaff away. Now I understand, and please understand the, my background, I understand that there are churches that do not preach the true gospel and that if you're in such a church that eventually you will leave. But I'm not talking about those kinds of churches. I'm talking about churches that are faithful to the word of God and faithful to the gospel. And some of my fellow pastors are tearing their hair out because they're not seeing people saved. They're saying, what's going on? I haven't changed my message. I'm preaching the same message I preached in the 60s and 70s and 80s. I haven't compromised my walk with God. I'm still the same man, if not a little bit more mature. But those days, people got saved by the hundreds. In my own ministry, I saw people get saved by the hundreds. Now I'm seeing one here and maybe one there. And we're saying, well, maybe we failed. No, we haven't failed. The times have changed. The times have changed. Jesus' coming is at the door. And he is shaking, that that which remains may remain. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And you know, as he, as he throws the, the, the mixture up in the air, that which is light blows away. And remember that the book of Ephesians speaks about those who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There is no stability because there is no substance. And they're blown away by circumstances, by false doctrine, by all sorts of things. And I believe that all of those things are tests that God is bringing to His church. Now I know you've not heard this before and you'll probably not hear it again. But I have searched my heart and I have examined these ideas with brethren that I walk with. And we are convinced that this is the truth. And so what is my message My message is, brother and sister, those who are here this morning, make sure that your anchor will hold. Hebrew says we have this hope as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, and it enters in beyond the veil. Our anchor is not in this world. Our anchor is not in the stock market. Our anchor is not in the next elections in Australia. Our anchor is in heaven itself. And when things are shaken around us, when the economy crashes, when whatever happens in this world, we are sure and steadfast because we are built upon the rock Christ Jesus. Amen. And we're anchored in heaven itself. And when Jesus speaks about the, 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 the rock, and remember that the one man builds on the sand and one man builds on the rock. And we say, well, that rock is Christ. Read the parable again. Who is the man who builds on the rock? The wise man. But what does the wise man do? He does the will of the Father. He does the will of the Father. And that's the only way. Are you doing the will of the Father? Are you doing the will of the Father? And if you are, you are on solid ground. But if you're doing your will, if you're doing my will, the preacher's will, you're on shaky sand and the storms are coming. The storms are coming to Australia. The storms are coming to the whole world. But that which is gold will endure the fire. I'm not saying we're going through the tribulation. I don't believe that. But I believe that we are going through trying times. The church is going to be tried and tested. And right now here in Australia, the whole homosexuality thing, the whole Islam thing, all of that which is going on in the world is testing. And Christians are losing their faith. Others are showing what they are really made of. And they're being blown away. But those who are his endure, and he who endures to the end will be saved.